Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Okay, there we go. I hope they can, oh, they can see me anyway. Um, as I was saying, the wars of the religion took place in the 16th century um, following the Protestant Reformation. Is it, is it working okay? Okay, good. Um, yeah, my head's, my head's getting cut off? No, no, it was. Okay, no, I said that. Um, and I was going to begin my lecture with a little image. And the first image was actually going to be of something totally modern or totally recent. Uh, I was going to begin with an image of ISIL in 2014. Anybody know what ISIL is? That would be the Islamic State in the Levant. That is uh, formerly known as ISIS. That is the Islamic terrorist group which conquered large parts of Syria and Iraq in 2014, 2016, 2017. Last year in 2017 was pushed out of their territory. And I put them up there because, well, partly, which is a comparison I'm going to make in a moment, uh, I also have a picture of a map of the conquer, uh, territories they conquered. They conquered a fairly large swath of Syria, Iraq, uh, mostly Syria and Iraq, in the Middle East. And the reason why I show you that comparison, they, of course, are an Islamic group that was motivated by very particular um, apocalyptic, apocalyptic form of Islam. They thought they were going to sort of bring about a sort of Islamic millennium by restoring the Islamic Caliphate. Why am I mentioning all this in the context of 16th century wars? Very simple. If you read news accounts of ISIS over that time period, 2014, 16, 17, you would hear things like um, the Middle East is now going through its 30 years war or you will hear that uh, ISIS is now basically, or because of ISIS, that the Middle East is going through its uh, uh, siege of Munster. You've never heard of the siege of Munster. You will after this talk is over. You will know what that, that reference is. But they're referencing the Western wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries. And uh, one of the things I want to talk about here is because, of course, this is a, a talk on Catholicism, is that the wars of the religion are part of a popular idea, a very powerful idea in popular culture, but also in academia. Um, particularly, it has to do with religion, because if you don't know anything about the, this is the second part of the lecture, was the problem of defining religion in academic terms. If you don't know this, there's actually a, a really big ongoing, it's been going on for decades now, uh, effort to define what religion means. You may think that's obvious, it's actually not. Um, it's very, actually very difficult, maybe impossible, to label under the, the term religion all the things that all people in the new world to worship their deities, from India to Africa to the Americas to Europe and so on and so forth. Um, having said all that, this popular image, of course, in Western media, in Western, um, uh, in Western, uh, uh, Western uh, political culture, um, um, shows this popular image of religion as inherently violent. It causes conflict. It is divisive. Um, it divides people. You hear this over and over again. And one of the sort of founding myths of the modern secular world is, and I say myth because it's a, a partially an historical account, and I had a nice little fun picture to show you. <laughs> I can't show it to you now. You'll see it on the slide. Um, is that what happened in the 16th century was you have Christianity split into two, Protestant and Catholic, they start killing each other horribly for religious reasons. Um, and the violence is so intense, it winds up basically exhausting itself. And what results is a secular state and a secular society, which is denuded of religion. Religion becomes privatized. It becomes this otherworldly thing that has nothing to do with people's daily lives, etc., etc. 
Um, and one of the, again, one of the nice pictures I had to show you, if you've ever seen the film, and I don't recommend it because I hate it, uh, anyone have seen the film Elizabeth? Uh, this is about 1998, I think. It's, uh, no, not with Paltrow, that's uh, Shakespeare in Love. Uh, Elizabeth is, is the film, I keep it, it uh, No, different one. Um, this was a film made in 1998 about Elizabeth I of England, uh, the Queen of England, who, if you've ever seen the film, um, I had the images, it was so nice. One image is of, you're going to ask me something. Well, I was saying, you could just play it on your laptop and turn it around, even if it's small. Uh, well, I guess I could do that. Um, that really you could see it a little bit. I guess it would help you a little bit. Okay, Kate Blanchett. Uh, Kate Blanchett, yes. Yeah, it'll be very good. Uh, we're going to have to play that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you maybe see that. That's Kate Blanchett on the left. Very lovely, beautiful, looks, yes ma'am. This is going to be kind of difficult for me to do doing this with the pictures, but you see what she looks like. She looks nice, normal, friendly. If you know anything about Elizabeth I, she had a reputation for not being terribly religious. Not necessarily true, but she was less religious than her contemporaries. Um, that's how she's portrayed in the film. Her counterpart, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary of uh, myth, is portrayed like this. Uh, as you, you, I don't know if you can see those images, she looks like a demonic harpy. Uh, and basically everybody in that film who is religious is a demonic, bloodthirsty harpy um, who wakes up in the morning wanting to kill people for religious reasons. That's why I hate the film. It's completely and totally unfair to people in the 16th century. And so what, uh, what I wanted to I want to linger on that too much, but um, this idea is very powerfully ensconced in, um, in our Western life. So one of the things, I guess I can try to do this, but it's going to be kind of a pain. Yes, I know, but it's hard on either side. Ah, there we go. That was the funny picture I was going to show you, by the way. Sam Harris. You know who Sam Harris is? You don't even know who he is. Um, so, and again, this goes back to the problem of what religion is supposed to be. Uh, how do you define it? Because again, that uh, definition that people have in their minds of, oh, it's a private thing, oh, it's an otherworldly thing, it has nothing to do with public life, is a modern conception. In the 16th century, 17th century, uh, everything's motivated to one degree or another by religious faith. So uh, one scholar talking about the Thirty Years' War, uh, who was arguing that it wasn't a religious war, said this, quote, the war was religious only to the extent that faith guided nearly all early modern public policy and private behavior, unquote. Uh, the question is, can you even separate out something like religion from everything else we think of in the modern world, sociology, uh, economics, those sorts of things. Uh, second question that arises from this, okay, what is a religious war? If we can't define religion, why bother using that label? Uh, and I have to say, when I mentioned the myths of secular modernity, one of the uh, things I'm most proud of, actually, is that this is mostly a myth among political scientists, philosophers, sociologists. Uh, historians of the wars of religion are actually a lot more nuanced about this, I'm happy to say. Um, 
it really depends. Uh, the label can be given, by the way, to things like the Crusades. We already talked about the Crusades in here. Uh, it can be given to wars uh, in modern uh, contemporary life. You can talk about, um, I just read a really good book uh, last year, I can't remember the, the title of the book, by Philip Jenkins about World War I. He was trying to argue that it was a form of a religious war. Uh, it depends on how you define it in a lot of ways. Um, so it leads to the question, of course, then, why the wars in the 16th and 17th century, why do they get singled out with that label? And that's what I kind of want to get into in this, um, in this talk and go through it. And so I think we have to begin with the Reformation, and hopefully most of you know something about the Reformation. You should. Um, and the biggest thing, of course, to note is that in the Middle Ages and well up until the end of this period, basically, is that, um, like well past the end of this period that I'm talking about here, uh, it was an accepted Christian belief that the state had a duty, a public duty, to basically over, to oversee or help, put this, to attend to their uh, subject's spiritual welfare, to help them get to heaven. It was a Christian duty incumbent upon Christian rulers, even if it was they were not churchmen, to do that. This is, of course, why the divisions, uh, division uh, that entered Western life with Protestantism was so damaging. It led to a divided uh, divided church. It led to a lot of natural conflict. Uh, part of it's basically true, right? Second part of this is that that term religion, I've mentioned it before, uh, it had a different meaning in the 16th and 17th centuries in the early modern period. Um, religion, if you have, it has a definition in modern modern context. Is a, religion's a body of private beliefs, a set of systematic beliefs you have that you pick out or whatever. It's not what it meant. Um, when the word went from Latin to the vernacular in the Middle Ages into English and French, it originally meant when you said religion, you meant, you meant a religious order, like the Benedictines or one of those uh, orders. Later on, it came to mean something like, well, your type of worship or something like this. In the Middle Ages, nobody talked about religion. They talked about the church. Why? Because the church is a living, breathing thing. It's in every town in Europe in the center of the town. You could point at it. It's a thing. You don't have to theorize about it. With the Reformation, this took, took a couple of centuries, with the division, with the serious, serious disagreements about, okay, what is the church? What, are, what is its basic beliefs? All of a sudden, religion becomes, I mean, it becomes, the term religion donates an abstraction under which you, of course, put different concrete types of beliefs, Protestant, Catholic, all that stuff. So you have this shift in the way the word is uh, used. But even then, it doesn't mean quite what it meant in, like I said, the modern terminology. Another thing to keep in mind about the Reformation era is that even before the Reformation begins, it is an era of state building. Um, historians talk about this uh, from the late Middle Ages in countries like Spain, uh, France especially, those two, but even England. The reason being that you have, in the case of, well, actually in the case of Spain and France, you have territories uh, that are being put together from different uh, conglomerations of uh, dynastic, you know, small territories. In the case of Spain, Castile and Aragon, the two crowns united become Spain. In France, there's actually a bunch of different dukedoms that are come into the French crown and create what you think of as being the modern nation of France. Um, and you have these monarchs of these great national monarchies trying to centralize their authority. What I mean by that is, in the Middle Ages, if you're a nobleman, if you have enough land, if you have enough money, you have almost by right the, well, you have the right to raise your own army. <laughs> you can raise a private army and overthrow what we'd call the state. They didn't really have a state in our terms. 
One of the things that monarchs are beginning to do at the end of the Middle Ages is try to raise revenue, tax more, and raise standing armies to put down these revolts. And these revolts, by the way, are endemic throughout this period. Aristocratic rebellion is one of the major things, of course, that happens uh, to destabilize regimes of uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century. What's going to happen, as we're going to see, is that this gets mixed up with the Reformation. Because on either side of the uh, divide, confessional speaking, confessionally speaking, uh, nobility who, again, had designs on the crown or wanted to have designs on the state would adopt one of the others of these uh, different confessions. Again, not always cynically, by the way, not always necessarily um, uh, for what we think of as not being religious purposes, but indistinguishable between those two purposes. They get mixed up very quickly. And then finally, one of the things that the the Reformation throws up is what's sometimes called the threat of radical reformation. When historians mean by radical reformation, I mentioned earlier that every Christian uh, thinker in the 16th century, for the most part, held the older idea that the state has a duty to uphold public religion. You did have uh, very, very radical Protestant sects who would deny this. Uh, in fact, they would go very, very far in denial of this. They denied, and I'm thinking uh, most spectacularly, of the Anabaptists. If you don't know who they are, they're a Protestant group who believes in rebaptizing uh, people who were baptized when they were younger. Why? Because they weren't old enough to give a rational assent to religion. So when well, they go around basically rebaptizing uh, subjects, and you're asking me why is this a big deal? Baptism was sort of like it's sort of like being uh, I put this. It's your entrepôt to citizenship in the Middle Ages. It makes you a member of the community. By saying that all of you weren't really baptized when you were kids is saying you're basically all without a, without a country, without a purpose. It really is. People hated this idea so much I can't begin to tell you. That and because, quite honestly, some of the Anabaptists were nuts. And I'll show you what I mean by nuts in a second. Uh, and um, this was a real threat, not just, by the way, to Catholic, but also to Protestant states who did not like these ideas uh, on the whole. So you have people taking Reformation ideas and using them in ways that are um, can be pushed very quickly into, this is an important point to note, what looked like to rulers in the 16th century, not as, well, I say as heresy, but for them, heresy and rebellion are the same things. Heresy is a political threat in a way that, what is that? No, no, it's a, it is a rebellion against the state to do that. Uh, and to give you, um, just a preview of these wars in the 16th and 17th centuries. There's about a half dozen major conflicts uh, that ensued with the Reformation. The first one is the so-called Peasants' War. And the Peasants' War begins in 1524. This is, again, one of the things I want to emphasize in the lecture is how a lot of these wars begin, or they begin with religious purposes. They sort of get mixed up with other things. The Peasants' Revolt was initially an agrarian revolt in Germany of peasants against their landlords. They didn't want to pay their rents. They were uh, uh, upset about economic issues. But very quickly on in the conflict, they began to um, organize and issue a series of articles drawn from the theology of Martin Luther, particularly his ideas about you know salvation by faith alone. You don't have to do any good works. All uh, the, the free actually has a phrase in one of his works that uh, every every Christian man is a uh, is a true Lord of all and subject of none. Okay, we're not subject to our landlords anymore, quite literally, by the way. Uh, they demanded, among other things, the right to use their own pastors, to basically the right of rebelling against them, essentially. Uh, and the reaction to this is predictable. They were brutally suppressed by uh, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. 
Uh, by the way, with Martin Luther's uh, thorough endorsement, he hated rebellion. He became very, very conservative <laughs> because of this. So we're not talking about, again, a Protestant kind of divide in that sense there. Um, secondly, the Schmalkaldic War, if I've ever heard of this, it's actually not that important. But uh, it actually took a long time for the Catholic and Protestant princes of Germany, once the Reformation, you know, once the, some of those princes broke away from the Catholic Church to actually fight. It's 1517, Luther posts his theses. Uh, it's only not until 1546 for actually a war go on. And uh, Charles V wins this war, and yet he's still not able to reimpose a Catholic settlement. Uh, a few years later at Augsburg, he's at Augsburg in 1555. He has to uh, agree to sort of, um, uh, to let Protestant princes have Protestantism as the official religion of their states. But that's the first war there. Probably the least consequential of the ones we're talking about here. The third major one is the Dutch Revolt. Um, this is the revolt of most of the, actually it's all of them in the beginning, but the, um, uh, the northern provinces of the Netherlands, who were under the control of Spain in the 1560s. They break away for a lot of reasons, religious, political, taxes, religion, that's usually the, the focus of these revolts. Uh, and eventually managed to declare the independence and they keep it. They eventually get recognized by Spain years later. Uh, but also uh, motivated by Calvinist uh, doctrine. Uh, and then you have probably the most bloody of all of these are the French Civil Wars. Uh, these begin in the 1560s between, and I'll get to this in a moment, um, um, Catholic and Protestant uh, noble houses who are sort of fighting over control of the crown, which from the 1560s onward uh, has a series of um, regencies in which you have young rulers being ruled over by the Queen Regent. I'll show you Catherine de Medici in a second. You can see her from here. Um, these are some of the worst and most bloody of these so-called wars of religion. Probably, by the way, the closest thing to what you have in that popular, that popular myth, basically, of modern, um, of modernity. Uh, and in fact, by the way, the French Civil Wars, they were the ones who originally called the Wars of Religion. Uh, that's the origin of that name. Got taken and applied to some of the other wars. Uh, probably the biggest, and this is the one that's usually uh, thrown out there as, oh, this is the passage to modernity, is the Thirty Years' War. And we'll come back to this in a moment and talk about it a little more. This has to do with, again, with the Holy Roman Empire. I don't know what that is. That is the German elective monarchy. I'll come back to this in a moment. In Central Europe, uh, we have, again, a fight between the Catholic Emperor and the Protestant King of Bohemia over various different things, um, actually over Catholicism. Uh, the Emperor is trying to reimpose it. Uh, this leads to a conflict which goes on for on and off for the next 30 years. Uh, this is usually taken to be the exhaustion of these wars, so-called. The other religious war, which is not mentioned alongside of them, but because of my training, I have to mention it, um, are, I'm calling them the British Civil Wars, because they're not English per se, they are English per se, they, the war, civil wars between King and Parliament in England, but they expand to encompass the entire British Isles. They take place in, in Ireland and in Scotland, what makes them unique, actually not unique, as you're going to see, is that uh, it's the only one of these wars that officially is between, uh, not between two different confessions. Uh, these are both Protestant uh, factions, Parliament uh, uh, and the King in England, but also between England and Scotland. There's also Catholics in Ireland, but mostly it's an inter-Protestant religious war, which it really basically is. Um, what you're going to see, however, is that on, uh, in all of these conflicts, at one point or another, you have... Catholics aiding Protestants and Protestants aiding Catholics. So it's not that simple that, oh, division equals we're going to start slaughtering each other. It actually is a lot more uh, into it than all this. 
Uh, and you can't see this at all. This is a map of Europe's religious landscape in 1560. Unfortunately, you can't see it. Um, basically, I don't know if you, can, you can visualize this. You have Spain down on the left end. You have France right next to it. You have the uh, Holy Roman Empire in the middle. The eastern part of the empire uh, encompasses the lands of Austria. We'll come back to that. This, sorry? There you go. Eastern. There you go. Um, in the south, you will have the mostly, uh, I don't know, by 1560, but in the south, most of the German states will remain Catholic. In the north, Prussia and some of the other ones, Saxony will turn, uh, turn Protestant during the Reformation. And most importantly, in France, you can't see this on the map, but large parts of the southwestern and southeastern parts of France are dotted with Protestants in the 1560s. French Calvinists make big inroads uh, into, yes, sir. Huguenots, there you go, that's what they're called, yes, French uh, French Huguenots. So the green Roman Catholic, the purple is what, Huguenots then? There's very, various different Protestants. There's actually French Calvinists, there's Anabaptists, uh, it's all different. That's why I wanted to show it, but you can't actually see it. But yes, okay. in most of these places, it's kind of mixed outside of, say, Spain and, and Italy. What's the orange and yellow? Lutheran. Uh, orange is actually Lutheran. Actually, the yellow is actually mixed because, this is one thing to note, in the 1560s in Austria and Poland, uh, Protestantism had made inroads into those places. By 1600, uh, the Counter-Reformation has reversed that. Poland was actually Protestant mostly at one point. Really? It's turned back, yes, by the time we get to the early 17th century. Uh, yes, you can ask a question. There was a Huguenot claimant to the French throne mm -hmm. who converted and he said Paris is worth a man. We'll get to him, yes. Oh, yeah. That's good, that's okay. That is okay. You can jump ahead all you like. I can't jump ahead. You can jump ahead. Um, oh yes, and I had to mention the Munster Rebellion. Um, because you had a group of these Anabaptists that I mentioned before, the ones who wanted to rebaptize people, who, uh, among other things, you had certain, again, uh, use the name Anabaptists, there are lots of different groups you throw under that sort of umbrella. Uh, one group led by a couple of different people, Jan van Leyden, a Dutchman uh, named Jan van Leyden. Um, laid siege to the, the city of Munster and took it in 1534, uh, attempting to establish, quote unquote, the New Jerusalem uh, in the last days before the coming apocalypse. Uh, and literally, they began to sort of go kind of hog wild. He proclaimed himself king, did von Leyden, in 1534. Uh, he um, basically uh, decreed that polygamy was now legal, took 16 wives himself. By the way, if you're wondering where he got that from, the Old Testament. Again, this is biblical interpretation with no, <laughs> with no, no, no uh, cap on it, as it were. Um, and uh, books were burnt. Uh, dissenters were executed left and right. And so you have a picture of them burning people, and you can't see it, but that's what that is. Uh, women were forced to marry. The place began to starve. This so terrified, absolutely terrified, the princes of Germany, both the Catholic and the Lutheran princes laid siege to the city. And when they finally took it, they uh, executed Le von Leyden and his uh, cronies in the most gruesome fashion and hung them from cages uh, in the city to make a point about what, about what the rebellion was, uh, what, was supposed to, what happened to rebels, which, by the way, if you go to, go to Munster, I think you can still see some of those cages. So this is what we're talking about when we say a threat of radical reformation and how seriously they took it. One thing I have to talk about all this right now here is the problem, of course, okay, so you have a divided Christendom. What happens if you are a Protestant in a mostly Catholic country and you are convinced that 
Pope's the devil. Uh, Catholicism is false. It's a false religion. It's not even Christianity. What happens when the government imposes upon you that you must believe, you must take the sacraments, or vice versa? You're a Catholic, uh, as in as happened to Owen Elizabeth in England, when Elizabeth and her uh, Parliament passed laws banning the mass, banning the sacraments, um, passing laws um, making it uh, a crime to be a priest in England. You need access to the sacraments. If you don't get them, you're going to hell. What do you do? So what happens is this problem of conscience, of course, because conscience goes back to the Middle Ages, you're supposed to follow a well-formed conscience. When you have such totally, totally uh, bitter divisions, is that at first people begin to appeal to self-defense. Well, oh, the, the, the king's going to sort of kill me. I have a right of self-defense. But very quickly, and especially this starts with Protestant uh, writers, but it very, spreads very quickly to Catholic ones. They begin to uh, develop theories of resistance, is what uh, modern uh, uh, thinkers call this. And what resistance means, basically, is, and you have to understand the context of this, in the 16th century, you weren't supposed to resist your, um, your appointed authorities. They came from God, your teacher, your parent, your father. And yeah, I, I know some of you were maybe raised in the Catholic Church, I wasn't. Uh, people took that deadly seriously. Uh, rebellion was something uh, Satan did. And that's what that is supposed to be, essentially. So, okay, what happens, though, if somebody wants to kill you for what you know to be right and good like this? And so what they came up with is these ideas of, okay, when it was appropriate to, in very certain situations, emergency situations, essentially, resist. And by resist, I mean fight violently against appointed rulers. Um, basically, and this, I'll get to this in a moment, break down what I'm talking about this. Uh, it basically meant whenever, uh, if you had a public figure, again, remember, this, the idea is, the state is supposed to be upholding public religion. What happens if it fails to do that? What happens if it takes the sacraments away from you and condemns you to hell? The idea is, at that point, you will have a right. You will no longer be bound by your allegiance to them, and you will have, it will be morally okay for you to, to get rid of them, to violently resist them. Uh, if you're wondering why I'm pointing all this out, because this is going to lead in the wrong run. In fact, this is already beginning in the 16th century, but especially in the period after uh, 1648, the development of theories of absolute monarchy. Uh, because this will be a reaction to, of course, you know, again, that idea of case, it sounds okay, it's a very particular circumstance, you know, uh, a conscience. It's also, of course, something that, as you can kind of tell, <laughs> it's something that can be easily abused. Uh, and in fact, this is where you're going to get an impetus because of the Reformation uh, for theories in which it's never okay to, uh, to attack the rule. That's essentially what absolutism means. There's only one authority within a given territory. That's the king. Not the church, not religion, but the king because he's divinely appointed and because, of course, he upholds order, which is what people, especially in places like France, are desperately going to want after the wars of religion are over. Um, and these are mostly, by, by the way, based upon two types of arguments. One, natural law arguments, just like a natural, uh, natural law theories of self-defense, right? If somebody's trying to, if they're not trying to kill your body but kill your soul, that's something, of course, that's an exception to moral law. And then biblical appeals, because you will have instances, of course, in the Bible when kings of Israel get killed. You will have um, episodes where you can sort of, if you like, twist that to justify, uh, again, Violently responding to uh, to uh, 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 to monarchs, public figures who are trying to destroy your.
your religion. And by the way, this is to give you an example of this, how this works for Catholics. In uh, 1570, um, because of everything that was going on with Elizabeth, the Pope, Pius V, uh, issued a bull, Regnans in Excelsis, in which he excommunicated Elizabeth I officially. And if you read through it, it's fairly short, you can find this on the internet. He goes through it and lists all the things she's done, ban the mass, ban the sacraments, imprison priests, all this stuff. And at the very end of the, end of the document, he basically says, you, uh, anyone now is basically um, bound not to obey her, they are absolved of their allegiance to this monarch. Now, the reason why it sounds like a, a reasonable thing, it was actually in some ways a very dirty thing that Pius V did, because this was in the context of really bad relationships between uh, uh, Elizabeth and her country, England, and Spain, who of course we don't know, it took them a long time, eventually they tried to invade, and this was probably meant as an inducement to get Philip II to invade. Uh, and again, this sounds, this is, what, this is what leads you to these types of, okay, desperate situations. What do you do if you're the Pope? And literally everybody's going to have no access to grace at this point. This is what escalates when you get into these certain situations here. Um, and um, lots of things going back and forth between Elizabeth and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the Holy Father himself. Uh, but it was a situation that any religious minority could face in the 16th century. However, these arguments were only applicable to the true faith. If you're a Catholic, this doesn't appeal to Protestants, they're heretics. If you're a Protestant in the 16th century, it doesn't appeal to uh, Catholics, they're pagans. Uh, or basically, we're devil worshippers or something. Uh, and so, again, it's not meant to be universally applied, is my point. It's only meant to be exceptional for them. Uh, and I can't really stress this enough, this was always, and I mean always, a minority position throughout this period. Very few people went to this extreme. Uh, but it did, of course, cause a lot of havoc uh, at the time. Because again, I can't stress enough how much people emphasized duty and obedience in ways that are just unfathomable to all of us. No matter what kind of good Catholics you are, you don't, Obedience isn't beaten to your head every day in the way it would have been in every single homily in Elizabethan England. They actually did produce a book of homilies, the, the Protestant Church of England, for their pastors. One of the ones that they, they had to do at least, I think, I can't remember how many times a year, was on Romans 13.1, which you know what that, that, uh, that passage is. That is, the powers that be are ordained of God. Uh, it was meant, again, to support the state. Very, very heavily beaten people's brains. Um, Main differences, by the way, in this, in terms of confessional differences, uh, are different sources of authority for this. For Protestants, it's the Bible, or more rare, appeals to liberty of conscience. Mostly it's the Bible they appeal to. Uh, for Catholics, of course, it's the liberty of the church they're appealing to. They're appealing to the church's freedom to, again, act in public for the public good, and oppose, if necessary, these states were doing all this. Right? So when you have these sorts of religious breakdowns, What I probably described to you sounds a little bit like those secular myths of modernity, isn't it? There is that element in there. However, however, um, several other things are going to be right there with them. They're probably more important. Somebody's phone blow. Um, the old problem of aristocratic rebellions is endemic throughout this period. And as I said before, it's going to get mixed up in these confessional rivalries. Uh, in fact, you can't separate them out, I'll show you. Um, and yeah, the, uh, the Reformation gives an impetus to uh, the of absolutism. Uh, and by the 1600s, you have, and I'll talk about the confessionalization thesis in a moment, 
the dynastic rivalries among European powers and sometimes within states themselves are going to be thoroughly mixed up uh, with this confessional dynamic. Protestants, Catholic, uh, and variations upon that. Uh, but even also within confessions, you're going to have those types of conflicts still going on, is my point. Uh, it's not erased by the Reformation. It's not erased by all the other, other concerns uh, that they might have been upon. So, brings us to, I'm going to give you basically two examples of these wars of religion here. Uh, the first, uh, this is again a map, I'm going to show you the map of France during the wars of religion in the 1560s. Um, you can't see it, unfortunately. Um, but um, basically, the thing I mentioned before, in the north, especially around Paris, that's the Catholic heartland during the wars of religion. The south and the southeast, southwest, southeast, that's going to be where in the rural areas where Protestantism is most, most um, embedded. And just a few, uh, just to get a few things straight before I start explaining this, um, there are three major noble dynasties involved in the French wars of religion. First, the House of Valois. And the Valois is the royal house during the 1560s. It dies out in 1509, we'll get to this. Um, and it's ruling France still in 1562. That's the dynasty that's ruling the ruling house. The second is the House of Guise. And this is a noble family that has uh, ties to the crown, to the royal blood. Um, the Dukes of Guise will be the major leaders of what will variously, variously describe as the, uh, the extreme Catholic party, if you like. They are the ones who are most opposed to Protestantism. They are the most ones most willing to use force to get rid of the Protestants in uh, France. The third royal house, and this is where Ray was going earlier, is the House of Bourbon. And the House of Bourbon is actually the kings of Navarre, which is a tiny little kingdom, but it's big, on a map uh, on the border between Span, uh, Spans, Spain and France. Spans. Uh, and uh, who also has uh, blood ties to the crown. And they are all, throughout the 30 years this goes on, or more, uh, vying for control of the crown. So, and Huguenots equals French Calvinists. Eh, that was the other thing. So, uh, a couple of images I was going to show you. The two major, two of the most important people involved in this. Uh, on the left here, you have Catherine de Medici, who was an Italian noblewoman who married into the House of Valois. And she's going to be a queen from 1547 to 1559. She's going to be regent. I actually have her on there regent at once. She'll be regent several times during this time period. She is a major influence on everything that happens uh, from the 1560s onward in these wars of religion. You see her there from the 1580s when she's a widow. That, that's Medici from Venice, right? What's that? That's the Medici name from Venice. Uh, I think she's a Venetian, but I think uh, uh, Medici actually from Florence, but I think she was from Venice. Um, on the right, you have Henri de Bourbon, who begins uh, life as the King of Navarre in 1572, when the earlier heir dies. He is the one who, yes, he will become uh, the King of France at the end of the Wars of Religion. He is a Protestant. Uh, Navarre is a Protestant kingdom. So, uh, back to this. So what happens in the French Wars of Religion, the French Civil Wars? Well, this begins in 1562. Um, and I, I don't have time to go too much in detail about this, but what happens is that the Regency government of Great, uh, Catherine de Medici had been trying to negotiate with the Protestants, with the French Calvinists. Um, uh, again, one reason I wanted to show you the map, by the way, which you can't see, is that Protestants were really well entrenched in the countryside. They had not only 
Uh, they're not only really a lot of rural mobility who are on their side, they had fortresses. They had military uh, training. One of the best military leaders in the country uh, uh, was a man named Coligny, who was a Protestant. Uh, part of the reason they were able to withstand the French state is because they were part of this nobility who knew how to fight, is my point. What happened, though, is that uh, in 1562, uh, after a, an attempt to uh, reconcile Protestant and Catholics by Catherine de' Medici, the Duke of Guise uh, was traveling through, the, um, through a Calvinist town called uh, Vassy in 1562, and for um, um, uh, uh, basically came by, um, came upon a group of Protestants worshiping outside the town, and for whatever reason, I was able to find out in even my uh, research of this lecture, was so enraged, I guess he thought they didn't have the right to do that, was so enraged by it, he attacked them and killed them all. And this set off the first of their eight, I'm not group, all of them, eight civil wars between Protestants and Catholics. Um, and there are actually a couple of different, basically two or three different civil wars before, which seemed to be, by the way, almost under control by the early 1570s. In 1572, um, the, uh, uh, the king, Charles IX, agrees to marry off his daughter, uh, his princess, his Valois princess, to Henri de Bourbon of Navarre. Protestant with a Catholic, try to bridge things up. Uh, and so they're invited to Paris for the wedding. All the major Protestant leaders are in Paris. Uh, Coligny, the, uh, uh, the great general, is there. What happens is, um, for a variety of reasons, people have never, historians just don't know, have enough evidence to say. Um, Catherine de' Medici and the royal family began to fear that all these Protestants were going to attack them. There's no evidence this actually happened, but there was fears they were going to try to assassinate them. Uh, no one's sure who gave the order, but someone decided that moment, hey, we have this guy here, Coligny, he's their leader, let's try to kill them. Tries to assassinate him, uh, they fail. Uh, the next day, fearing reprisals, they decide to sort of go whole hog and they kill every Protestant leader they can find. The only people left alive in this are Henry, de, uh, Henry, de, Henry Bourbon and his brother, who escaped by uh, basically agreeing to convert to Catholicism. They, renounce it as soon as they get away from the court. Uh, but this leads to, this is, this is the same part of the day, this is the part of the day massacre. This leads to uh, Catholic mobs killing uh, Protestants in the countryside around Paris for several days afterwards. Several thousand people are, are uh, massacred. This starts off the next round uh, of uh, wars in, uh, in the French Wars of Religion. By 1576, um, the Protestants seem to have uh, gotten a stalemate. They're trying to make, again, the, the House of Valois was trying to sort of mediate this as best they could, but 1576, the House of Guise, the sort of ultra-Catholic uh, faction, didn't like this. So they uh, formed, Henry the Duke of Guise, formed a, a League of Noblemen in the North, the Catholic League, to oppose the Protestants, and began getting funding from the King of Spain. Uh, and again, by the way, this is one of the themes of the 16th century is that foreign powers intervene in every single one of these conflicts, which is one of the things to keep in mind why they get so bloody for so long. Um, and so this uh, sort of, I would say, restarts the wars anew. It keeps them going for the next, uh, uh, well, for a long time, actually, till in 1588, uh, Henry III, who is the uh, uh, king of England, um, basically decides he's had enough of the Duke of Guise, and he has him murdered. The next year, he is in turn murdered by uh, a Dominican friar who is uh, part of the Catholic League. 
And again, by the way, all of these same sorts of justifications. This has betrayed the Catholic cause. We have to get rid of them, that sort of thing. Um, till finally, in 1593, realizing he's never going to take, um, he's never going to unite the country, because at this point, the only heir to the throne left is the Protestant Henry Bourbon, realizes uh, that uh, he cannot become king unless he becomes Catholic. So in 1593, he's been trying to take the city of uh, city of Paris. Paris, by the way, is the heart of Catholic resistance. Uh, he decides to put the of the country you know, Catholic. Uh, he's crowned king in 1593. Uh, it takes him a few years to mop up resistance. The Catholic League finally draws down. The Pope finally gives his blessing. He excommunicated him. Uh, and the um, wars of religion are effectively ended in 1598. I say that there are still uh, there are still conflicts that go on that can be characterized as part of that for several decades. This is at least the end of the instability of the monarchy in 1598. So after that fun little uh, adventure into history, okay, and that's the, uh, he passes by the way, issues the Edict of Nantes in 1598 when he becomes king, granting very limited toleration to French Protestants, granting them rights to have to have uh, military installations to protect themselves rights of uh, public and private worship, those sorts of things. For the most part, fairly grudging, and only to sort of get the conflict uh, ended. So, big question, okay, what explains the ferocity of these wars, if not religion? A couple of things to, to note about this. Uh, you can't discount, of course, uh, religion itself, right, as a background to this. One of the things I should mention, by the way, uh, I'm gonna mention the spread of French, uh, spread of French Calvinism, um, because, um, French Calvinists were um, entrenched in the country since the 1530s, but in the 1550s, John Calvin, the founder of Calvinism, uh, started sending missionaries to France in the 1550s to convert the country. And you have to understand, it's not like Protestants are sending missionaries to, say, India or to the Americas to convert natives. They're not trying to convert people who aren't Christian, are they? They're trying to convert, basically trying to overturn the Catholic monarchy there. So this is kind of an aggressive thing that uh, Calvin does, and it does, speed up the process of uh, tensions there. Uh, secondly, one of the obvious things is the weakness of the Valois monarchy. Because you have so many uh, people die, because you have so many uh, um, sons who have come of age, where you have their overbearing mother, uh, Catherine de Medici, trying to run the country for them. Uh, this means it makes it's a prey uh, for, again, no point more strong than them. This is why having Henry de Bourbon eventually take the throne was a big deal. He was a young, uh, strong enough person, good enough leader to put all these unfolding down. Um, thirdly, it's obvious is that a lot of this has to do with the rivalry between the Guise, the Valois, and the Bourbon. Uh, a lot of this was motivated as much of any, by anything as things of aristocratic honor, things like, and I'll explain this in a moment, um, um, but the rivalry of the nobility is, is one of the main drivers of this, obviously. This is happening before the French, before these wars happened in the uh, 15th century. So this is not something that's necessarily new because of the Reformation. The other thing that makes this so ferocious is the intervention of foreign powers. And virtually every power you can think of, England, the Netherlands, uh, German Protestant princes, uh, I don't think the Austrian Habsburgs got involved, they might have, um, and the Spanish all sided with one side or another during these wars. This, of course, always makes things worse. Uh, then finally, finally, uh, there is a religious element here, and I'm actually taking this from a, a very good historian named Mac Holt. And his theory was, yes, this was about religion, 
but it wasn't necessarily about what we think of as Christianity or a sort of sort of theological dispute, right? They're not fighting over sola scriptura when they're killing each other, right? The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. They're not fighting over doctrine. They're not fighting, in essence, over ideas or differences over Christian truth. What they're fighting over, according to Matt Colt, was um, a sacred social order. And I, this, is his, uh, this is his wording here, by the way. Um, he said, quote, the motivating force behind the violence of the Civil Wars was the perception of safeguarding and defending a sacred notion of community defined by religion, whether that be traditionally Catholic community of most Frenchmen and women, or the minority community of the saints of the Protestant faith. Each community sought to define, or for the Huguenots redefine, the boundaries between the sacred and the profane for the whole country. As a result, at various times, each group viewed each other with great suspicion and as a clear threat to its rival. Unquote. My point is that this isn't necessarily um, a Christian idea. This is sort of a vague notion of, you know, uh, social order is sacred, uh, heresy is social pollution, right? And what do you do with diseases? You purge them. That very much is the sort of uh, mentality behind a lot of what goes on. And again, it's very it's hard for us to get our minds around because we don't, again, we don't think of our social order as being sacred in the same way. Um, but it's not necessarily specifically tied to anything in Christianity that way. It's, again, it's not, obviously no there's no um, Christian uh, doctrine saying you should go assassinate people like happened to St. Bartholomew's Day, right? That's, the, uh, of course, the opposite of that. Um, but it has that. And by the way, there are other uh, societies, perfectly secular ones, who act just the same way. Just give you an idea of this. Which brings me to the next uh, other major one I wanted to talk about, the Wars of Religion. The other example, which is, again, you can't see the map, is the 30 years. Again, this is taking place mostly in Germany, mostly in the, within the bounds of the Holy Roman Empire. You can't see it, so I won't go through it too much there. Uh, again, just a few uh, terms to explain a few things. First, when I say Holy Roman Empire, what I mean by that is that is uh, the Holy Roman Empire is ancient. It goes back to the ninth century. And it is an elective German monarchy. That is to say, there are princes who elect an overall emperor who has authority. He's their overlord. But he's not like a modern, he's not an absolute monarch. He can't just tell them what to do. He can't boss them around. They have a lot of authority. It's a very decentralized form of monarchy, basically, in the 16th century. Uh, in fact, this is what one of the things that makes the Protestant Reformation successful. The Protestant princes are able to play their power within the empire against the emperor himself, who's always Catholic. So that's the whole other empire. The second thing to note are the houses of Habsburg. There are two lines in this involved in this. The, Austrian House of Habsburg, eastern part of the empire, and the Habsburg House of Spain, uh, which is the ruling uh, monarchy in Spain in the 1630s, uh, 40s, and so on and so forth. The House of Bourbon, the ruling dynasty of the French at this point, this starts in 1618. Um, the Kingdom of Bohemia, which is in the eastern part of the empire, very close to the Austrian Empire, is a Protestant kingdom, and they're very crucial to understanding how this starts um, within the empire. And then finally, the other uh, major player in this is the Electoral Palatine, or the Electorate of the Palatine. It is a Protestant princedom, a Protestant elector of the Holy Roman Emperors in Germany. It's a lot to swallow, but I need to know it before I go into this. So, how does the Thirty Years' War start? So, it starts in 1618. <coughs> What's going to happen is that you're going to have uh, the election of a new emperor. The old emperor dies. Uh, and Ferdinand II comes to the throne. And one of the things that makes Ferdinand II different than his predecessors is, for a long time, because they wanted to keep the balance of peace in the empire, 
Uh, some of the early Catholic emperors weren't that insistent on trying to reclaim the empire for Catholicism. Ferdinand II was. He immediately came to the throne and sort of signaled his intention. He wanted to, as far as he could, convert the empire back. Uh, and so you begin to have northern Protestant states angered by his election um, uh, create a uh, union, a Protestant union. Uh, in particular, uh, there's a lot of uh, defiance in uh, Protestant Bohemia. Uh, and uh, uh, after the so-called, there's an event where they basically toss a bunch of the emperor's ambassadors out the window, literally, in Prague, because the Czechs, don't, the Bohemians don't like them. They survive, by the way, they live. Uh, this is called the defenestration of Prague. Uh, you, have, uh, you have the Protestant Bohemians, because Ferdinand, by the way, is also the king of Bohemia, uh, technically speaking. They basically kick him out. They basically elect the elector of the Palatinate, Frederick V, as their king. They rebel against the emperor this way. And so that's what, uh, that's what sparks the first spark. You have uh, Ferdinand going to war, Ferdinand II. And for the first 10 years or so, uh, he is essentially triumphant. Uh, his, uh, his allies are mostly the southern states in the empire. Bavaria is the most important one. Um, they expel uh, Frederick from Bohemia. They soon crush the rebellion at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620. Uh, Bavaria conquers the Palatinate uh, by the 1620s. Um, in 1625, excuse me, it's been the early 1620s, he's been uh, defeated. In 1625, the king of Denmark tries to come into the uh, to the to this uh, quagmire and save uh, German Protestants. Uh, he is defeated by uh, Ferdinand and his general, who is a man named Emmanuel Wallenstein. 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 Uh, I mention him by the way because he's one of the the um, <coughs> mercenary generals who are very prominent during the Thirty Years' War. Starts life as a Protestant, he becomes Catholic, or just works for Ferdinand II. There's a lot of people, as my point, who change sides in this, and who aren't necessarily in this for religious reasons. Excuse me. <coughs> by 1629, it looks like, by the way, Ferdinand II might actually get his wish. He wish, 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 wish. He might actually be able to turn the entire uh, Holy Roman Empire back to Catholicism. And so he issues something called the Edict of Restitution in 1629, <coughs> which is kind of his downfall, because the edict basically orders all the Protestant countries to give back all the convents, all the monasteries, all the cathedrals they've taken since the Protestant Reformation in the 1550s. Um, which leads to, by the way, uh, the next phase of the war, in which uh, Sweden intervenes on the side of the Protestants. And you're gonna. You may be thinking to yourself, Sweden, what? Chocolate people? No. Uh, in the 1630s, Sweden was actually one of the great military powers in Europe. In fact, because they, they had one of the best generals, Gustavus Adolphus, uh, who invades in 1630, and for two years manages to score major victories and beat back Ferdinand's armies. He dies in 1632, and this is the key thing about this. Uh, Sweden is actually kept in the war by subsidies from France. You're wondering, why would the French want to help these Protestants? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'll come back to this. But they basically keep Sweden in the war with their, uh, with their uh, money. But in 1635, after the, uh, the uh, imperial forces scored another victory over the Swedes, France intervenes directly and sends troops into the Thirty Years' War. So they're not restarting it, but lengthening it out even worse. This is a so-called long war. It's a 13-year uh, conflict, basically which eventually ends with an ultimate stalemate at the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, 
Um, what happens with the treaty basically is that um, all the parties involved agree that basically you need to have a balance of power. No one power to be dominant. Um, the age of restitution is dropped completely. Uh, if he gets rid of that, does Ferdinand. Um, Calvinists gain the same rights as Lutherans within the empire. Why is this significant? The earlier settlement that had been reached in the 1550s was only for Lutherans and for uh, Catholics. Now it extends basically to everybody. And what that settlement is, by the way, um, I can't remember the Latin phrase off the top of my head, but basically means whoever the ruler, whatever the religion of the ruler of that country that he rules, that's the official state religion. And so you have a Calvinist prince, you have a Calvinist state. Even if like 90% of his population is Catholic, that's the rule. Uh, and so this is basically a, a sort of compromise, the best thing they can think of to do, essentially. Um, and this will set the stage for diplomacy and war for the next, for a long time. Uh, but it's, it's essentially a, uh, uh, I don't want to say a last ditch, but it's a, an exhausted sort of answer to the conflict, which didn't really solve anything in the long run. So again, same question. What made the 30s years war so devastating? One of the things is has to do particularly with the Holy Roman Empire itself. I mentioned earlier it's this elective monarchy that um, is not very centralized. And one of the things about it that made it kind of survive so long is it wasn't really flexible because it didn't have it didn't have a sort of unitary sovereign like you would have in France or Spain. Um, but that's part of what caused the conflict are these conflicts, not just between the Catholic Ferdinand II and his Protestant princes, but also between some of the Catholic princes who didn't like his, again, he was not just imposing on Protestants, he was imposing on the rights and the privileges of these Catholic princes as well. So this is about centralized versus decentralized authority in uh, civic terms as much as anything. Um, the second thing that uh, is usually sort of suggested to make this, uh, um, to explain the ferocity of the Thirty Years' War, is the so-called confessionalization thesis. And this is the idea that you have states increasingly using their confessional status, as Calvinist, as Lutheran, as Catholics, to strengthen their centralized authority. Again, Ferdinand would be a good example of this, someone who's using it to strengthen his state, not necessarily cynically, but as a means to an end, essentially. Um, and again, this is, eh, this is uh, true to a certain degree. Uh, although usually the person, the, the scholars that come up with this idea tend to stress, I think, the modernizing aspect of this too much. Uh, they, tend to think, they tended to think this resulted in a secular state, my point, it doesn't really work that way. But it is possible, they, they did use these, like France under Cardinal Richelieu, who was the Minister of State in France, he was obviously using religion for state purposes, and people knew this at the time. One of the biggest things involved in all this is the rivalry between the Habsburgs and the Bourbon and the French. Actually, between actually a long-standing attempt by the Habsburg monarchy to try to dominate Europe, and the uh, the determination of mostly France but other countries as well to prevent that from happening. That's the reason why, by the way, the French came in on the side of the Swedes. Uh, they didn't want the Habsburgs winning essentially, and this has to, this is again, this is why this isn't purely a religious matter. Uh, this is dynastic rivalry. This is raison d'etat uh, in, the, in the terminology of the period, right? And then finally, one of the last things is the use of mercenary armies is one of the big, big things that makes this so horrific. Why? Well, because you don't have your own troops uh, going through your own countryside. And when you have mercenaries, of course, they're living off the countryside. They're stealing crops. They're doing lots of other things, bad things. Uh, things like, for example, they would target clergy and pastors and religious. 
uh, to take his hostage for ransom so they could get money and supplies from town they were besieging. Uh, rape was relatively common during the Thirty Years' War. Um, because they pillaged so much, it caused uh, hunger. It caused, um, um, I would say, quasi-famine and starvation in certain areas in the empire, which is why you have such uh, a high death toll. Um, and of course, you have, just because of all this, because of these mercenary armies who, by the way, uh, again, they're not making distinctions. They may be fighting, for example, on the side of, say, uh, Catholic Bavaria, but they may raid their countryside anyway, uh, even though they're supposed to be on your side. This happens a lot. Uh, it's one of the major things that happens during this war is just the sense of, well, basically sheer instability of everything. Everything seems to be up in the air all of a sudden um, during the 40, uh, 30 Years' War. I'll give a quotation from one historian talking about the, the effect of mercenary armies on the German people, peoples of the war. Quote, with pillaging soldiers, disastrous poverty, and epidemic diseases, everything from the next harvest to one's life and religion was in question. Uh, everything is sort of thrown into chaos by all of this warfare and all of this, um, all of this uh, um, upheaval. Right? So I need to talk about this then. Okay, so you have in uh, these wars, Christianity obviously plays a part to a certain degree, right? And I think one of the things you have to say is that the wars of religion, if you're going to talk about these wars, for the most part, do not directly uh, concern Christian truth. It's not as if people are going into battle saying, you know, uh, for the Blessed Sacrament and against, you know, they're not, they're, not, they're not fighting the issues that led to the Reformation in the first place, right? So we're not talking about wars with this stuff uh, in the, uh, the wars of religion. Um, it is mostly about, I'm going to call a conflict over ancillary or secondary problems. Again, yeah, matter of membership, right? I mentioned the whole notion of a sacred uh, social order, the way that Matt Colt mentioned it. It's more about people, okay, they know, okay, Catholicism is true, they don't quite know why, but they know it's right, and they have to get rid of the bad guys, or vice versa, right? It's a slipping into things that are important, right? We think, obviously, it would be better if everybody was Catholic. Uh, it's good to have Catholic as, uh, I think, the public uh, face of the country. Um, this was not, in, in fact, the reason why people were actually directly fighting. Uh, they were not, it was not the reason that you had people going to war. Their motives were very, very mixed, as I can kind of maybe tell from my, uh, from my presentation. Um, and there's, of course, a difference between motives for fighting, by the way, and uh, justifications for fighting. They're different things. So, uh, and they had a lot of different uh, ones of both. However, this is the thing we have to mention here for honesty's sake, it was, of course, a major source of conflict. Um, I'll say this. You know, the Sunday War, by the way, didn't cause the wars. It caused the division in the first place. And that's actually, that's actually kind of something I think that is true about uh, Christian, um, uh, well, Christian truth. Um, Jesus says, you know, I bring not peace but a sword. Um, the letter of St. James says, um, friendship with uh, the world is enmity with God. Uh, again, this doesn't mean it needs to be violent. It doesn't for the most part. But it does mean we are in conflict and will be in conflict. Um, the trick in all this, by the way, is I, I think people have picked out these wars and cherry-picked the worst aspects of them to say that, okay, that's all that Christianity is about, which is, um, I, think, I hope what I finished is not true. Hello.
Oh, there you go. So, to recap, um, Reformation made the church a source of division in a way it hadn't been before, been a source of unity. It does become a, a source of division. Um, but if we're gonna, I'm thinking about here of how we're going to replace that secular myth of modernity. Okay, there was a division, but it did not lead, first of all, to the replacement of a religious culture by a secular one. It led to the replacement of one religious culture with another. That is the culture of absolutism. I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but again, um, most historians understand now that religion was still very important uh, to the states of, statesmen of Europe after 1648. After wars and religion were over, confessional differences still mattered. Uh, in fact, um, absolutism is a religious doctrine. Uh, it basically says the king is the sole determiner of, you know, sole governor of, you know, religious faith and public worship and stuff like that within his given territory. This is something that anticipates, in certain respects, a modern national, you know, nation state. Uh, it's sort of a precursor in some ways, but it's still identifiably religious. It's in no way secular uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and in fact, the modern secular state, modern secular societies, uh, are born not after Westphalia or because of the wars of religion. They're born out of the overthrow of those absolutist regimes in the 18th and 19th centuries, which, by the way, were violent overthrows. <laughs> they did not happen peacefully. Uh, and in fact, a lot of these wars, of course, were very, very bloody and violent. I don't have to go into the French. I probably should do one on the French Revolution at some point, but that being the sort of most bloody, the American Revolution as well. Uh, all those uh, those wars were just as bloody in some way. So, yes, that would be the worst one. Yeah, I forgot about that. I, do you always think uh, this is the worst, and then something worse comes along? You know. Um, so to recap, a few points to take away from this. If you ever have to face someone like a Sam Harris uh, or something like this, first of all, the state was as much a cause uh, as a, or as it was a solution to the wars of religion. That should be the first thing. Uh, yes. Um, Religious people acted madly. There were some people who took extreme uh, extreme measures, but the state was as, as the civic uh, leaders were responsible as responsible as religious people were, probably more so. High politics, it still is. It always is the driver of most things uh, in most uh, times and places. Secondly, the motives and justifications for the war varied a great deal. Again, I'm not saying religious uh, 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 aims didn't play a lot a real big role in them. Um, but they were one among many and to compete with other different types of motivations for king, for country, for other things like that. Thirdly, uh, just as a sort of analytical uh, point, what we call religion isn't really distinguishable from other aspects of life in that period, as I kind of mentioned this before. Again, religion informed, as you know, we talk about it, informed everything. So to pick that one factor out as being the sort of, you know, the only factor that matters is, is cherry-picking. Uh, it's not a real honest enough assessment of what happened. And again, most historians actually agree with me, so I'm happy that's not going to say that. Um, and again, you can tell as someone who says, well, the wars of religion. It's like, no, Europe did not become secular in 1648. It did not lead ineluctably to the secular state. And more to the point, Europe did not become magically peaceful when it did become secular in the 19th and 20th. Uh, and that uh, is the lecture. So, uh, 